surrounded by the bodies of those lost in the crash and forced to listen to the screams of those teetering on the brink of death. It was as if they were enduring the various levels of Dante's Inferno. For those that don't know, Dante describes the nine circles of hell which are separated by the various seven sins and how each one is punished. In the first circle being purgatory, and the last circle Satan's dwelling. In the third circle of hell, the sin of gluttony is punished by having to endure icy rain, a quote, wintry mix that lasts all eternity. Probably feels they can relate to those trapped in level three of Dante's Inferno. Some of them will make the ultimate escape. I'm your host, Michael, and this is strange and unexplained. We rejoin our group 11,500 feet above sea level in the sub-zero temperatures of the Andes on the border of Argentina and Chile. Though they may not have been in the literal circles of hell, there is not much that feels closer to being there than what these people went through on that first night. Having emerged from the Fusil Lodge after spending the first night praying to whatever god they believed in to survive, as the blistering cold tore through every crack it could find, their group had lost another one. Grazelia Mignani, the lady who had been pinned by the seats and broke both her legs, whom the group was unable to, move, unable to move or assist, she passed that first night due to her injuries. But somehow, a sense of false optimism grew in the group, and a divide began to take shape. Some of the group's attitude was to sit back and wait to be rescued, including team captain Marcelo Perez, who at just 25 years old took charge of the group. Meanwhile, the rest were certain there was no one coming for them and they would eventually have to save themselves. Both groups started making preparations for staying long-term. Because of the amount of snow on the ground, the group thought a rescue may take days or weeks, so they would need to be smart and prepare to survive at least a while there. They quickly came up with a way to melt newly fallen snow into clean water, as eating ice so much was causing blisters to form in their mouths. They pulled aluminum panels from the plane and used the power of the sun to melt the ice. Brilliant thinking, everyone. It became a daily chore for a member to collect clean snow that had not been contaminated with blood or oil from the plane. When all the food was found and counted, all that was left were a few chocolate candy bars, a few bags of nuts, and a good bit of alcohol, of course. I mean, so they're good. Uh, Including three bottles of wine and a few bottles of different liquors. So right away, they started rationing that first night. Everyone was allowed a square of chocolate and a deodorant cap full of wine. (laughs) So don't gorge yourself. On the first day, the group saw two planes fly by and thought that maybe one had actually tipped a wing to signal that they had found them. Some of the group took this as a sign that they were about to be rescued and unfortunately, prematurely, consumed one whole bottle of wine and extra chocolate that night. But when there was no rescue the next day, the group had to face a hard reality. The plane had not seen them at all. The white plane in the white snow was almost impossible to see from the sky. 
Another reason the group's chances were slimmer than they thought uh, is the search party was looking in the wrong area. The tower believed when they lost contact with the plane that it was on the right path. The, but the plane had gone down miles to the west of where everyone was searching. The group eventually found a small radio, though, among the wreckage, and they were able to pick up a local radio station. They heard that the search for them had started, but was being stalled by an unexpected spring storm. Good luck, huh? Daily they tuned in, hoping to hear good news about their rescue, only to be met with disappointment. On the third day, Nando Parado made an unexpected recovery, but shortly after his sister would die as a result of her injuries. The group was losing hope day after day until the final nail was driven. One morning, Marcelo had awoken early. He and another passenger decided to listen to the radio. Surely, there had to be some kind of update. And there certainly was an update. The group then heard something that would instantly drain every bit of hope from their hearts. This afternoon, the search for missing Uruguayan Air Force flight 571 has been called off. The chartered Fairchild FH-227D plane was carrying 40 passengers and 5 crew members when it is believed to have gone down somewhere on the Chilean and Argentinian border, just east of Corico. It is believed there are no survivors at this time, though the search for the wreckage will continue when conditions allow. Recovery at this time is believed to be impossible. Oh shit. They gave up. Anger. That's what we felt, one survivor recalls. We were angry at our families, our friends, the world, and even God. We had been abandoned, presumed dead. We quickly realized the only way we were going to be rescued was to rescue ourselves. But how the hell was any of this group going to hike for miles in blistering cold and ravishing winds? How was anyone dressed in layers of t-shirts and light sweaters, rugby cleats and makeshift equipment going to hike the insurmountable Andes Mountains with no food or water? A group of men made the first attempt on October 17th. They walked and walked and walked. When they reached the top of the hill, they realized they'd only been hiking for an hour and it was becoming more and more evident that this was not going to work. They were dehydrated and starving. They had not had real sleep since before the plane crash, and the oxygen at that level was painfully thin. The men were forced to turn around and head back to the plane. Though the first attempt failed, Nando Parado insisted they had to try again. He presented to the group that they needed to start making plans or they were going to die. They needed to keep trying because there was no other option. How? they asked. His response was chillingly honest, but eerily truthful. Hike out and get help? How would you ever make it? You would starve to death. You can't hike of the Andes on a square of chocolate and a sip of wine, Nando. Nando's response? I'll cut meat from the pilots then. They are the ones who got us into this mess in the first place. <laughs> Nando was already saying out loud what everyone else was thinking. 
If they were going to survive, they had to eat something. And the bodies of the other passengers were being preserved outside in the snow. Bodies that were full of life-saving nutrients. And now, now, they were their only chance. Already gone days with the minimal amount of food and water, and were already feeling their bodies starting to consume their own selves in an attempt to stay alive. If they did not do something soon, they would be too weak to recover, much less hike for miles out and get help. So it was not an easy decision to eat the bodies of the dead. Okay, let me just throw that out there. Uh, This group did not take this lightly. Roberto Canessa, along with Gustavo Serpino, and two others were first to consume the meat, but were eventually and very reluctantly followed by the rest. There was only one man who refused to eat, and as you may have guessed, he starved to death. This was not easy, and was something that changed all of them forever. But soon it became normal to the group, at the time, right? In this mindset. They knew, I think this group knew that this is something that they're going to have to deal with later, perhaps down the road, or if they're rescued back home. But right now, they had got to a point where they accepted it, but they just didn't talk about it. (laughs) They first attempted to eat the fat and flesh, but were advised by Knessa to start consuming more nutrient-dense organs to get the maximum benefits. It's actually good advice. (laughs) They honored and respected the ones they consumed, comparing it to Holy Communion, On the night before Jesus was to be crucified, he gathered his disciples for a last supper. They drank while Jesus metaphorically compared this act to drinking of his blood, and they ate bread that symbolized the body of Christ. So taking part in communion would be an acceptance of the blood and body of Christ in exchange for eternal life. In the same way, the group literally consumed their friends' bodies in order to stay alive. Now, this may just seem like a cliche comparison here, uh, but this little fact here, and whoever initially made this comparison for them, saved them and their entire reputations and the way they were looked at when they returned home. Being from a heavily Catholic, Catholic, heavily Christian area, um, they needed this type of symbolism in order to be accepted back into society. They really did. So, back to the normalized cannibalism I was talking about earlier. Uh, Some bodies were off-limits, as you could imagine. There were family and friends on the plane as well, right? So, Knessa guarded the bodies of his sister and mother and said they were not to be touched. They started with the pilots, since no one was personally connected to them, so they thought that that would make it easier. Um... In fact, it did not. (laughs) The group later made a pact that if any of them passed, the rest of the group had their blessing to consume their bodies, and that morally, that is what they should do. So now, we enter the new norm. Acceptance, Acceptance of the crash has rooted firmly in the group, right? They know what's going on. They know what they're going to need to tackle in order to be saved. And at first, 
They need to figure out how the hell they're going to live. So a lot of new norms were established. The group had found a map amongst the wreckage and were already trying to chart a way out. By this time, four men were chosen to make the hike. These men were basically allowed by the group to eat and rest as much as they wanted so that they would be plenty strong enough to take the journey. Before they were able to do so, tragedy struck. On October 29th, around midnight, as the group was settling for the night, the ground began to vibrate. A deafening rumble blanketed the fuselage, and before anyone could register what was happening, the fuselage was consumed by snow. They were buried alive by an avalanche. Those still alive acted quickly, digging and pulling others out of the snow before it was too late. But eight members were killed, and the remaining were now trapped, buried under snow, in this cold, metallic coffin. When the avalanche hit, it swept away all the bodies the group had been using for food. They were trapped in snow for three days because of a blizzard. Again, putting them in a situation where they were forced to eat now the new bodies that were trapped in the fuselage with them. The others had been dead for days before anyone thought about eating them. These people with them, they had just died. Just hours, moments before they had been talking and laughing with these people. The group was now down to 19, two of whom were men with severely broken legs and internal injuries. Both of them would eventually pass. The group had no other option. They had to save themselves if they were going to get, have any chance at getting out of here. So again, four were chosen to hike out. Fun fact for you, um, in preparation of making this journey, they made socks out of elbow skin because the ones they were wearing with their cleats were thin and wouldn't keep them warm. So it's a little fun fact for you. That's a little sand do exclusive, maybe. I don't know. Maybe other people know that. I'm sure they do. Uh, on November 17th, the group started off with only three, as uh, one of the four that had been originally chosen to take the hike had been injured. Uh, after hiking a few hours, though, finally a glimpse of hope. They found the missing tail section of the plane. Remember the tail section that I said, talked about in part one with all of the goodies in it? Oh, Lord Jesus, it was like Christmas time. Christmas time in the Andes. Now they had more food, more wine, clothes, batteries. Now that they had more clothes and food and wine, I'm sure they had their share of that immediately, right? Now they felt like they had the strength to continue more. Um, but the next day they almost froze to death. So they decided to go ahead and head back to the plane and let everyone know about the goodies that were in the tail section. Another thing, real quick, before they left the tail section, they also um, took the radio with them on that hike and tried to hook it to batteries, uh, but it did not work. And they were only able to pick up local news. But they did hear that the search for them had resumed. Unfortunately, this was not good news. At least not news they had hoped for. 
At this point, the planes were searching for bodies and wreckage, not survivors. The planes were surveying the area and taking pictures. Then it would take who knows how long to have them developed and looked through. So the group went on with their plan to hike out to get help. So on December 11th, the three men, Kanesa, Nando, and another man called Tintin, piled on as many layers as they could spare and packed as much as they could carry and headed northwest. They hiked for three days before reaching the top of the mountain and seeing more mountains for as far as they could see. It was white as snow. As they had just started to lose hope, Nando noticed something. Two mountains to the west didn't have snow on top of them. He believed that they would follow the valley that led between them. The valley led to Chile. Tintin gave his supplies to the other two men and ran back to the plane. The other two men were going to keep heading west in hopes of coming across someone. The next day, Tintin had made it back to the plain, and Kanesa and Nando were able to reach the bottom of the mountain, finding a stream of fresh water with grass growing and birds flying around. Their luck was changing. Seeing that vibrant, beautiful green, Kanesa ran over, fell to his knees, grasping a fistful of grass and shoving it into his mouth. <laughs> That just caught me by surprise. It's like I could see rolling in it and whatnot, right? Uh, you know, maybe maybe splashing around in the stream a little bit. Uh, but I don't think I would still stuff that grass in my mouth. Who knows, though? Who knows? I mean, anyway, the two men end up following the stream and camping alongside it for days. And slowly they start to find hints of civilization. There are horseshoes and soup cans on the ground. They find a herd of cattle one day and their spirits are slowly allowing hope to creep back in. And then, they see him. On the other side of what is now a river, it is a man, a farmer. The men yell and shout, wave to get his attention. They cannot hear him over the rushing water and are forced to use another form of communication. So they quickly write a note on some paper and tie it to a rock and toss it to him. They alert the man that the that they're plane has crashed, they are survivors, and that there are more of them. They need rescue. The man sends the note back, indicating that he would return tomorrow. And he does. And Nando and Kanessa were taken into the farmer's home, and help was called. Next day, two helicopters were sent back to the mountaintop, to bring home the rest of the survivors. When the planes arrived, they were only able to have half of the group on the first night, and the other half were left with medical staff and supplies until the helicopters could return the next day. On December 22, 1972, all 16 were brought down the mountain and treated for their injuries. The group braced for judgment and shame that they would face for their sins on top of the mountain, and at first, they did face some judgment and shame. The headlines grimly told a tale of cannibals instead of survivors. But once the group broke their silence and explained to the world that they honored their dead by eating them, they came around. It was understood that the group did what they had to do. 
Roberto Canessa visited the families of all those lost in the accident in an attempt to repent and give the families an explanation of their actions. He thought he would be met with hate and disgust by the families, but instead, he was met with love and understanding. One father told the press, quote, I'm glad there were 45 of them, because that helped 16 of them return, end quote. It's kind of dark, but I guess it's true. Roberto Canessa went on to become a pediatric cardiologist. He married, had kids, wrote a book called I Had to Survive, How a Plane Crash in the Andes Inspired My Calling to Save Lives. And he's still alive today. Nando Parada also went on to write about the experience. He's married, had children, became the CEO of multiple businesses, and he's given TED Talks and done seminars. All of the survivors went on to have full lives. And it was all thanks to those who did not make it off that mountain. Forty years later, the survivors got to play that rugby match <laughs> that they were headed to against the Chilean team. And before we go into the Lorne synopsis, I'd like to leave you guys with a quote from Roberto Canesa. It goes as follows. Quote, We should be more thankful that we receive from life much more than we need. And we do much less than we can. End quote. <laughs> That's true. That's his uh, really pretty way of saying, We spoiled, y'all. We spoiled. Life's easy. All right. I'll see you on the other side of Lauren's synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. Lauren here, hitting my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. Flight 571, also known as the Miracle of the Andes. In 1972, a Uruguayan amateur rugby team was flying to play a game in Argentina when their plane went down in the Andes Mountains in October in frigid cold weather, snow. A lot of these guys had never seen snow before. Um, there was 45 people aboard the plane, the, the team, the pilots, and some family members of the team. Um, and by the end of it, 72 days later, 16 would still be alive somehow, miraculously. Um, obviously, there were some, some deaths on the initial crash. I, th- I actually find it quite amazing that as many people survived the initial crash as there, as there was. Um, it was pretty fortunate, actually, that the way the plane was able to slide to... I know the, the back end of the plane, the back wing of the plane came off, and there were some people lost in that. Uh, in that initial strike, as well as one of the pilots on the initial crash. Um, the other pilot had quite an unfortunate fate being stuck in the cockpit, actually asking other members to shoot him, which they refused to. Um, I'm not sure if he ended up uh, taking his own life and shooting himself or what uh, what he succumbed to, um, but amazing that 16 people survived 71 days in the mountains uh, without, you know, obviously rations, without proper, um, warm clothing. Um, and man, the, the misfortune to not only be involved in a plane crash in the mountains 
and to have the search party basically give up on finding you, pass over you several times. And they heard on the radio that the search party was calling it off, you know, um, that, that misfortune, but also to have an avalanche like 16 days after the plane crash, when you're just trying to survive living in the plane to have an avalanche strike in the middle of the night and take out eight more people and trap the rest basically in the, in the plane, um, then eventually being able to dig themselves out and just to find that there was a terrible storm outside the plane and they had to go back in to the plane that they'd been trapped in for days and days. Um, eventually what made this, this case so, uh, infamous was the fact that they resorted to cannibalism, which I, I think anyone would, you know, I know that it was, uh, especially hard for these guys because, uh, just about all of them were extremely religious, um, and they viewed this as uh, a mortal sin that may send them to hell. You know, they were basically taking the soul from their comrades. Um, but I, the thing that I just, was just reminded of in this is that the, the will to survive in all living creatures, not just humans, but in all living creatures is, is pretty amazing. And really, you know, I think initially in something like this, when they survived the plane crash for the first day or two, they were fighting out of fear of death. And I think it gets to the point though, where they no longer feared death. You know, when you're weeks and weeks into this and you're in living hell, essentially on earth, um, you're freezing cold, you're starving. Um, many of your loved ones and friends are around you have died and you're stuck looking at their, you know, their remains, um, and eventually forced to eat them. I think it, it, that plays on just a will to survive, the will to live, the will to want to be alive, you know, not, not as much fear of death. I think they got over that. I imagine pretty soon, pretty quickly after the crash, you know, they got over the fear of dying. Um, but yeah, man, I, I didn't listen to part one because I didn't want, I wanted to stay true to our method here on strange and unexplained to have my take on it be completely my take, uh, without any influence from Michael's take. So, I'm not sure what all he's talked about. I can't wait to listen to the two-parter at, at its conclusion. I will say that I was very aware of this case because I love the movie uh, Alive. I've seen the movie Alive. Uh, I would love to watch it again. It's been years since I've seen it. I think it was put out in like 1994. Great movie. I know, and it was uh, it was first a book way back, not long after this happened. I think in the 70s, there was a book written called Alive, and it was made into a movie in, in the early 90s. And I, I love the movie. Um, I, I highly suggest it. And I honestly, maybe I'll get the audible book on this. Cause this case just, I love tales of tales like this, of the, the extremes of the human experience, as Dan Carlin would say, uh, I find it fascinating. That's why I'm so fascinated with war and study world war one, world war two, just, you know, the, the fact that human beings have lived lives like this, you know, we're so lucky to live in the world we live in now. Um, but, uh, yeah, these guys, it's amazing. I think that the bond that they have, the 16 that survived went on. I'm sure a lot of them have passed away now. You know, it's been a long time. It's, you're talking what 50, 60 years since this happened. They're, they're old if they're alive, but I know they, they kept getting together and I'm sure it was a lot like guys that have fought in war together. You know, what they went through together, uh, no one else can really understand but them. So very fascinating. I hope you guys enjoyed my take on it and I'll see you next time.
All right, Lauren, thank you so much for that synopsis, as always. I should have known Lauren had seen the movie, right? So many of you have. Um, I did not have time to watch the movie. I did watch the trailer. Um, I did check it out. And like I've said a million times before, on this podcast and True Crime Guys, I'm not a huge movie buff. Um, I'm not someone who can sit in front of a screen for long periods of time, unless I'm talking to it, apparently. Um, I tend to be able to do that. (laughs) But... um, guys enjoyed this episode. I know it wasn't very mysterious, but I still think uh, it's it's strange, right? I mean, to say the least, it's a strange predicament to have to be in. And me being the paranoid, somewhat prepared person that I believe to be, uh, I like to study about these situations because we can learn from them, right? God forbid we're ever in a situation like this. Uh, we'll have a little bit of insight into what some people did that lived through the situation, right? So it's always good to check those out. Just like it's good to learn about crime and see what killers and victims uh, do and what victims did wrong and whatnot, it's also it's also helpful to look at when a victim wins, right? And that's what these people were. They were victims of circumstance. They were victims of, of weather and harsh conditions, and they prevailed. They fought back, and they won. So just another case of the victim fighting back and winning right? (laughs) That is why I chose this case. Um, I just love the story behind it, and I wanted to look into this more anyways, so I thought this was a great reason. So, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode, like I said, and I'll get back to uh, some more unsolved and missing persons cases uh, very soon. So, Guys, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for supporting the show. Number one way to support the show is Patreon. Patreon.com slash podcast for just three bucks a month. You guys can get early access to all of these free episodes, as well as access to another show that I do on Mondays called Strange Shorts. Um, every Monday I release a Strange Shorts. It could just be on a, uh, a more current true crime topic. Um, or it could be on just strange cases that I find, strange strange circumstances uh, that just don't have enough information for a full episode, or maybe I'm just kind of caught the tip of the iceberg, I'm excited about something, and I want to share it with you guys. And then I may do a full episode on it later. Who knows? Either way, strange shorts, they're typically between 20 and 30 minutes as well, and like I said, every Monday you can get access to that as well on Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. Speaking of Patreon, I want to give a shout out to some new patrons that have joined in the last week. Um, you guys don't know how much this means to me. Patreon is the wills of the podcast. If you can, please consider, please consider a monthly donation. I am working hard to bring content and to make that money worth it. Okay, so just know. But I want to give a big shout out to Sarah Freeman, came on at the $5 level. Also, Juanita, thank you so much, also at the $5 level. And two more at the $5 level, Dela Westcamp and Milena Valentine. Thank you guys so much uh, for joining Patreon in the last week. And they jumped on at the $5 level, so they will be receiving the uh, exclusive Strange and Unexplained uh, nighttime sticker. You know, the normal logo is during the daytime. It looks Uh, like a desert landscape with two velociraptors. Well, this is two velociraptors walking around at night, right? What's stranger than that? What's creepier than that? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, But anyways, they'll be getting those stickers as well as access to everything that I have on Patreon currently because that is the highest tier that I currently have on Patreon is the $5 a month tier. Uh, It's cheaper than your Starbucks coffee, you know, 
uh, just pointing that out. So you give me five bucks and then I'll go spend it on Starbucks coffee. Okay, fair? All right, guys. Uh, guys, check out our merch, truecrimeguys.threadless.com. There is also Strange and Unexplained merch on there, obviously, or I wouldn't be giving it a shout on this show. Uh, again, that's truecrimeguys.threadless.com. Check the link below the description. If you guys want to check out some merch, we got stickers, we got shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, tank tops, fucking everything. Um, all available on Threadless, as well as Redbubble and Ken Custom. Uh, both are sites that you can find links to uh, either on our Instagram page, truecrimeguys.com, uh, or at the bottom of any True Crime Guys episode. All right? All right, guys, that's pretty much all I got. Hey, go give me a follow on social media, at Podcast. Go give me a follow on Instagram. Love you guys. I will holler at you next week. Remember, be strange. Just don't be a stranger. Mm-hmm.